Welcome back to Comics Over Time, a podcast where we take a trip through the history of Marvel Comics with a focus on some of the important and interesting comic stories that inspired the Hollywood blockbusters of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Every two weeks, we take a look at a batch of comics, then watch the related MCU movie or TV show, and after we're done, we connect the dots from the comic book panels to the moving pictures and try and answer that most important of questions, who told the tale best? The books with a screen adaptation. Welcome back, everybody. My name is Dwayne. With me, as always, is my good buddy, Dan. Dan, we got a movie this week. Absolutely. It's, uh, after spending all of last week reading through Brian Bendis' version of The Age of Ultron, we now get to compare it pretty much directly, sort of an apples-to-apples type of thing, with Josh mm-hmm. Whedon's take on Age of Ultron. Exact same topic, done just two years later. So should be basically a direct adaptation of the comic books, right? <laughs> exactly the same, only different. Yeah, we, suffice we, it to say there are there are some differences. So some 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 pretty big differences actually. And and a note, just spoiler to the towards the end of the of the show. Basically, they just liked the title. Kevin Feige basically said we stole the title from the comic book because we liked the title. It's not because there was anything else with regards to this. So just just yep. something to keep in mind. But <clears throat> sounds entirely right. <laughs> Before we jump in and talk about Age of Ultron, we are first gonna talk about some comic book news. And the big story of the week we're not gonna hit directly. The the big DC studio announcements I'm sure you've seen and 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 read about them if you're listening to this podcast, but there was an interesting byproduct that occurred as a result of these studio announcements. And it was, there was a run on DC comics as a result. And actually James Gunn went on Twitter to assure everyone, Hey, if you're looking for the comic books for some of the things we announced there, we're going to reprint them and they'll be out soon. So yes, there is it, it. I mean, we've saw it when when like Moon Knight was coming out. We saw there was a run on Moon Knight comics. It was really difficult to find them, especially the beginning, the first the first couple months, and even the months leading up to it. I can't imagine you're surprised by this. No, it is something we're seeing more and more. And what's what's intriguing, of course, also is that the price of the original comics is going to skyrocket. They're, right. they're not reprinting those. What they're reprinting are all the trade collections that are out at Barnes & Noble and everything else. All of those have sold out. And that is probably because nobody at DC Studios alerted the folks at DC Comics that they were going right. to be doing adaptations of Booster Gold and this particular Supergirl story and everything. So they were mm-hmm. you know, wandering along with their low supplies and, and hadn't reprinted these in years. And now they're just gone everywhere. So... The uh, the lack of any real cohesion between those, you know, the comic <laughs> studios or the comic book publishers and the the movie studios adapting this stuff is a little insane sometimes. But yeah, there's there's a number of interesting things that they're they're gonna do. Some of them are things that had already been announced and were in progress. Some are sort of a little bit out of left field. But I'm I'm happy that Gunn is coming out and letting folks know a little bit of kind of what he's planning. I, it is always aggressive to give like a 10-year plan of what you're going to do with your movies because right. will will this entire slate make it 
the you know in the order it is, I would say zero percent chance of that happening. But right, at least we know kind of what they're thinking. The direction they're going is from the looks of it, a little lighter with Superman and some of the other heroes, but still with a very dark sort of undertone. It's still going to be a much darker studio than Marvel. The Supergirl right. story is one of the darker Supergirl stories in a lot of ways. You're looking at Swamp Thing, who's always been kind of that more of a horror-type character within the, mm-hmm. the DC universe. So, yeah, a lot of changes, but nonetheless, sort of the, the base DNA of the studio remains. Yeah, no, that's... That makes sense. I will have to talk at some point about about some of these these uh, books that they're going to be adapting because I'm not familiar really with any of them. So it's oh, yeah. well, there's some like the Authority, for instance. That if if you're right. not a comic book fan from essentially the '90s, you've never heard of the Authority. You have no idea who these these yeah. folks are. Right. So yeah. So well, we will get plenty of time to talk about this. As we near uh, near near the release of these shows, I'm sure. Sure. So the other story I wanted to highlight this week, and it's because I think both you and I are pretty big fans of WandaVision, that coming in March there is going to be a WandaVision inspired variant cover on the new Scarlet Witch comic that's coming out. Uh, it is going to be Scarlet Witch number three by David Nakayama, and it is. Features Wanda Maximoff's transformation into the Scarlet Witch, the showdown between Vision and his white counterpart, Monica Rabo and her sword outfit, and Agatha Harkness giving the reader a sly wink of the eye. The Westfield version of Vision and Wanda in their suburban civilian clothes is also included. It's a great looking picture. Uh, the cover is in the article that we'll link on comicbook.com. And um, yeah, it's, I, lo- I loved the show. We're going to see a variant cover based on the show. And uh, March 8th is when it's going to be available. You had a chance Very to look cool. at it. What do you think? Uh, it's, I mean, a lot of these variant covers are just beautiful. And they yeah. did it yet again. Nakiyama is a really, really impressive artist. He's got kind of an anime-inspired kind of a style, but also very, very detailed and almost photorealistic manga, you'd think of it. Yeah, yeah. This uh, looks so, very realistic. A, lot of, the, a yeah. lot of these different aspects of the cover look very realistic, but in that sort of manga sort of way. Yep, and so it was very interesting. So I, I, like, I like it. I think that a lot of these... Um, if you're if you're interested in different sorts of styles of art and the like, the variant covers are a great place to go to find some cool stuff. Looks like you have a recommendation for this week. Just one quick note to folks: if you're a fan of comics and you're a fan of live action, or you're a fan of animated comic book uh, entertainment, my most looked for comic book movie of 2023 actually comes out tomorrow in in my terms because we're recording this on monday february 6th it's already out sure. by the time you're listening to this it's the legion of superheroes animated movie from dc and i've been a i've been a legion of superheroes 
fan since I was basically the first comic book I ever bought was Legion of Superheroes 279 and I've been a fan really? ever since. So huh. absolutely looking forward to this. It's Supergirl needs training in her powers. She gets sent to the future by Superman to go and hang out with the Legion of Superheroes. And I assume some sort of world or universe threatening uh, sort of uh, threat will appear where they have to save the day. But sure. really good stuff. If you're interested in that, check it out. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. The DC animated movies have actually been extremely high quality over the last few years and have almost always been, been a good time. All right. Sounds good. I will, I will definitely be looking into that at, at the very least recommend you do the same. We'll have a link to uh, the IMDB posting about that uh, in the show notes. Let's dive in and let's talk about Age of Ultron. But first, our, our spoiler warning, even though this movie came out in two, 2015, we are going to be going in great detail through everything that happens, uh, the storylines, all that sort of stuff. So if this is something you haven't seen or want to see before hearing us talk all about uh, plot points and actors and actresses involved, please stop the recording right now. And come back to us when you've when you've watched the show. Or even if you have watched it, if it's been eight years, you may have forgotten a few things. Because there's some stuff I yes. I had not remembered that uh, a few things kind of were like, oh yeah, that's cool. I didn't remember that being in here. So I hadn't watched it in a while. Right. I definitely did as well. So let's dive in. I'm going to give you the film facts for... Marvel Avengers Age of Ultron. The tagline for the movie is A New Age Begins. It was released May 1st, 2015. It has a runtime of 141 minutes. Box office take worldwide 1.4 billion with a B. And I bring that up because domestic Yes, domestically the movie made $459 million. That means internationally it made almost $944 million. So a huge international take on a budget of $250 million. Its IMDb movie rating is 7.3 out of 10. And it stars a whole host of people, but I'm going to limit it to Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Chris Hemsworth, Mark Ruffalo, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, James Spader, and Samuel L. Jackson. This is directed by Joss Whedon, and the screenplay was also written by Joss Whedon. Those are your film facts for Avengers Age of Ultron. Dan, two-minute-ish sort of recap of the movie in case people don't Good luck have, to me haven't on recently that. watched it. The 17-hour movie reduced... To two minutes, so. <laughs> I didn't say you had your uh, you have your work cut out for you yes yeah it it is a it is a little easier than you'd think for being a, a nearly two and a half hour movie because there's a lot of punching that can be condensed but nonetheless yes. I believe I timed this at about two minutes 45 seconds so let's go see how it goes folks things start out with a bang in fact a lot of bangs as the avengers advance on baron Struxer's research lab slash fortress in the first big set piece 
The team recovers Loki's scepter. Despite the interference of Strucker's secret weapons, Pietro and Wanda Maximov, and Stark takes it back to his lab and begins to play with it. Nearby, Dr. Helen Cho is repairing injuries that Hawkeye had sustained during the battle using a new tissue generation technique. It's going to become important later in the movie. Banner and Stark end up continuing to play with dangerous toys in the hopes of using the scepter and its power, along with Stark's Iron Legion sort of robot technology, to successfully complete what he calls the Ultron Project. The hopes for this, or what he plans to do, is to create a suit of armor around the entire world. While the humans are at a party, Ultron and Jarvis then have a conversation later that night, after which Ultron attacks Jarvis and takes over the tower's networks and technologies. Black Widow and Banner are flirting, Cap moves the hammer just a tiny bit, kind of surprising Thor, and Stan Lee has a bit too much Asgardian ale. <laughs> As the party ends, though, Ultron appears, starts a fight, and eventually ends up escaping to Strucker's castle after threatening to essentially destroy everyone on Earth because human beings are simply not to be detrusted on the planet. So, Stark then ends up defending his creation of a murder bot to the team. But we start to see some rifts develop because everybody's relatively angry at how uh, just irresponsible he's been crazy alien technology. Ultron then teams up with the Maximovs, who are looking for vengeance on Stark for the destruction of their family by his weapons. They help him get Antimantium from Claw, and also loose the Hulk on a nearby city after Wanda messed with his mind. Eventually, Hulk's, or the Stark's Hulkbuster armor allows him to defeat the Hulk in a massive battle that destroys a good part of the city, but the Avengers' reputation is going to take a significant hit as everyone around the world is seeing what the Hulk is doing. They then decide to go and take a little bit of a break and hide at Clint Barton's farm, visit with his family, who they didn't know existed up until this time. And Ultron takes advantage of that time to find Helen Cho, kidnap her, and have her build him a new, better body out of vibranium that he's stolen from Claw. The Avengers catch up to him just as he's starting to download his consciousness into this new vibranium body, and they stop him with the aid of Wanda and Pietro, who finally come to realize that Ultron is actually destroying or planning to destroy the entire world, not just the Avengers. Stark then decides to repeat his Ultron error, this time using the vibranium body along with a reconstituted Jarvis, who he's found in the internet someplace, kind of bringing himself back together after the fight with Ultron. His hope here is to make essentially a better result the second time by doing the same thing over. <laughs> Cap shows up and is unhappy with this decision. A big fight ensues, and Thor eventually comes in and sort of Frankenstein monster electricity hammers the big uh, casket that the Vision's in, electrifying him and the vibranium and bringing the Vision to life. Uh, the team then heads off to Sokovia, where they work to evacu evacuate the city before launching an attack on Ultron's forces. Ultron somehow manages to cut out a portion of the city, like literally like cut out a circle of the city as the, the whole like bedrock under it and everything, and then lifts that into the sky with the intention of crashing it back down from space as a meteor that will tri trigger this sort of extinction level event, ridding the world of humanity. The Avengers then need to evacuate everybody with the help of a shield helicopter carrier, 
while keeping Ultron from getting to the big button in the center of the city. If he can push the button, then he can just essentially knock the whole thing down and destroy a good part of Europe, at least, if not the entire world. Quicksilver ends up dying, saving Hawkeye, and Wanda then, in her sort of, know, what would you call it? Of yeah, death. Wanda in her sort of anger and loss over her brother, ends up finding and confronting Ultron, and shows us just a bit of the power level she really has. The team then explodes the city-shaped meteoroid, keeping it away from destroying the planet. Vision finishes off the last Ultron, after they have a nice chat about how humanity is doomed. And the movie finishes with the Avengers moving into new facilities and gaining some additional recruits. There we go. Pretty good recap. Yeah, man. There's, there's a lot going on. Although in actual fact, like I say, because you start this thing with a massive battle and you end this thing with a massive battle and you have at least two massive battles in the middle. Right. As far as actual plot, there is less there than you'd think from a two and a half hour movie. You know? Right. Right. Yeah. So like if I had to do a two and a half or three minute review of The Godfather or, or recap, I'd be <laughs> toast. Right. Yes. This at least yes. I had a chance. So anyway. You did it. You, yes. So so let's let's dive in and let's talk about this. First, the origin story of Ultron, because this is similar, I think, in a lot of ways to to the the like creation of Ultron from the comics, but obviously there were differences, right? We don't have Hank Pym in the MCU to this point. And so it is Stark and Banner who end up creating the Ultron and the, they, they don't so much like create him from scratch as they do sort of deciphering this information that is in Loki's scepter, which is actually kind of in the mind stone itself. It seems that, that is inside the, inside the scepter that's powering the scepter uh, right now. Um, mm -hmm. we, 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 we learned that, you know, I think, I think the, rather than being kind of helping the betterment of humanity, I guess it's kind of the same thing, but Stark is talking about creating this peacekeeping force so that the Avengers could, wouldn't be needed. And, and like his, his whole point to, I think Steve Rogers at one point is, you know, let, let, let's finish the mission so we can go home. And, and that's what the whole idea of this Ultron project was supposed to be. It was like, if, if the, if the Avengers like weren't around or they like weren't available, there would be something here to help protect humanity. And, and it just so yep. happens that it ends up being the thing that they need to, that, that humanity needs to be protected from. Yeah. I think that, you know, it, the differences are there, but nonetheless, the overarching origin story is relatively similar. That you've got one right. of the Avengers who's trying to do something to make the world a better place. And he creates an artificial intelligence. And in this case, they sort of create one that is merged with information from the stone. But he's essentially trying to base it off of existing things. That then essentially replicates itself into a more powerful and more dangerous entity that almost immediately recognizes that the best way to carry out its 
mission of making the world a better place is to get rid of humanity. Right. And then at that point, they have to stop him. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So, that I mean, is... really, the overarching part of it is pretty close. Ultron is still right. very much Ultron in this. Yeah. And so what did you think of the look of him? The The look of him was amazing, actually. I, I was... I, I did not remember what Ultron looked like. And then we watched the movie. And in fact, the, the visual attack effects team said that they based Ultron's body on the Swiss watch. He quote, he is a perfect robot. He's elegant, beautiful, sophisticated. And, and he very much looks like that. And like, you know, obviously that very first version we see with him just basically spare parts from the iron uh the 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 iron mm -hmm. legion of starks uh you know is completely different than say that final battle version in sokovia uh where there's like thousands and thousands of uh, of basically versions of him trying to attack and and get to this the 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 big button nope. in the center of town yeah i think that the the Ultron, the main Ultron robot, is one of the most just brilliantly designed robots ever on movie or, you know, in movies or television. It is, sure. and it, it looks very much like Ultron looks in the comics, but they tweaked it and they made it better in some ways. And, and they still gave him this very non-human way of moving and acting that made it very eerie and almost like uncanny valley-ish when you're looking at him so the some of the acting in it in terms of the movements and stuff the one thing the only thing that bothers me about ultron is i wish he didn't have teeth i don't know if you noticed this but they're sliding plates with his mouth and sometimes when he smiles or makes a weird thing you can see what looks almost like a set of teeth in back there and i'm like really ultron <laughs> does not need teeth he should not have teeth so there you go. He, he the, the the other thing that's that's really interesting is all the versions, no matter what version it seems like you see of of like the prime, the main, the main uh, original Ultron, very intimidating looking, very, very has yes. a very big presence to him and and like looks like the formidable opponent that the Avengers would need to have to go up against, I think. Yes. He could technically be in the form of like a teddy bear or something and would be just as dangerous. But yes. that, is, that is not how he chooses to present himself to the world. No, so, no. Yeah. But let's talk about the actor behind Ultron because one of the main things that I really liked going into this movie is I am a huge James Spader fan. And I remember like being so excited to see him in an Avengers movie, in a Marvel movie and watching it again, what caught my attention was just how brilliant Spader is as Ultron in this. I don't think there is anybody like from the moment he first comes on the screen and you hear him start talking, he just has this magnetism about him, that, that intimidating presence. I, I think of Hannibal Lecter uh, when I think about those sorts of villains, you know, 
very confident, very under control, very just level. But at the same time, you know, there's a million things going on and, and he's moving chess pieces and trying to put you at, at the disadvantage. And, and it was, it was amazing because I feel like there, uh, Joss Whedon, Joss Whedon said that Spader was the only person he wanted for this role. And I think he absolutely nailed it. Yeah. He's, he's a psychotic robot. I mean that yes. you can you can tell that he is a psychopath. That that yes, he's he's very intelligent. You know, he's he's an AI and everything else. But he has no ability to to understand that anybody else exists in the world. He is completely and totally self centered, and he believes yes. entirely upon you know the the conclusions that he has made, and is not looking for other people's counsel. In terms of what no. to do, he's just like, okay, I've made no. the decision. I'm right. Let's just carry out the plan. And so he's a very inhuman and and sort of you know lonely character in that way. That he even mm-hmm. says that at one point. He's I don't really have anyone to talk to when he's talking to uh, the Black Widow. And that really is the case. That he is this singular intelligence that also is very limited in significant and important ways the, you know one of one of the things i guess whedon said about picking spader for the role he said he's got this hypnotic voice that can ir- be eerily calm and compelling while also being very human and humorous and there are there are a few like one-liners i think that he has in there when when, when he's confronted uh taking the vibranium uh, you know, Stark asks him what he's going to do with it. And he's like, oh, yeah, I, I was just going to give you the monologue explaining my p- brilliant plan or something, mm-hmm. something that affect uh, like as all villains do, you know, they monologue out how they were planning on beating the hero. Mm-hmm. So be, giving the hero time to to come back and 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 beat them then. But it was just it, it was just just everything about i think the the way the way he he portrayed it and and like he as you as you talk about it he i think he understood the role too he he talked about ultron being self-absorbed and immature he said he sees the world from a very strange biblical point of view because he's brand new he's very young he's immature and yet has knowledge of comprehensive broad history and precedent and he has created in a very short period of time, a rather skewed viewpoint. And, and so that, that does sort of drive everything that he's decided to do. And it is, it, I, I feel like there's very few people that could have pulled it off because he, he, he apparently has stage background, you know, and, and like, he felt like he was like, uh, saying Shakespeare and stuff like this. And, and at the same, and it just, it just, it just, it really worked for me. And in fact, they used his voice. They just processed the voice, made it more metallic and, and machine-like quality. But it is his voice, and you can definitely hear that it's his voice throughout all this. Yeah. No, there's there were a number of places, you know, that even even times like when he semi-accidentally cuts off Claw's arm, and you can tell that he's not quite. Yeah. Like, oh, I didn't necessarily mean to do that. You know. Right. Um. He has, he truly does have elements of just being someone who's 
who's growing to understand their powers and what they can do, has no real idea. He's kind of making it up as he goes along, but he would never admit that, you know? So, yeah, I, I think it was, as a villain goes, it's tough when your villain is not human. But what they did with this is created a villain that he's not sympathetic at all, but he is still odd enough that to a certain extent you can still identify with him which is weird not much yeah. less than in <laughs> many movies but, right but it's you know in any the, case the the other the other thing is he had he had he had some help or at least for the first half of the movie he had uh wanda and petro pietro maximoff the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver, uh, though they're not called that at any point during during this film. Though I guess Stark does actually call Wanda a witch at one point, but we we, we don't have to actually have references to Scarlet Witch or Quicksilver in this movie. And that they were created by Baron Strucker and his playing around experimenting with Loki's scepter before before they were able to uh before the Avengers were able to come and get uh, Loki's scepter. And in fact, we saw in the post credit scene, was it Guardians? It was Guardians, right? The the, the post credit scene, we saw the, saw the twins. Where, we, where they first showed up? Yep, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So the, we kind of knew that they were going to be in there. And oh, they the, the twins? Did. I don't think they yeah. were. I think that was, um, was Dark Captain World? America 2. It was oh, Captain America okay. 2. It was Captain America too? Okay, I no. I misplaced where what what end uh, post credit scene that that was from. I I apologize. They are but, detached, but it was, so it's easy yeah, to get mixed up. Yeah, but it 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 was really interesting, like how an important role they play in this movie, both in helping Ultron at least initially take out the Avengers that that first battle. The Avengers basically get their butts kicked. And, and, and in fact, if anything, mm -hmm. we see just how powerful Wanda Maximoff can be or is going to be in in yep. the MCU in that she doesn't throw a punch at any point during that during that fight, yet basically kind of sets everybody off uh, with kind of the uh, the the mind manipulation that she's able to do uh, dur during that battle. Now, keep in mind, and, and this is something else, though, is that to me, though, it also seems like she at that point doesn't understand what she can do. Because she thinks at that point that her powers are just that ability to give people these sort of interesting dreams and the like. She doesn't actually throw hexes until later in the movie when things start going down I, and she starts yeah, that... to really realize what's going on. So yeah, that last Sokovia scene, I think, is when she finally starts to like create the balls and throw of energy and then throwing them at people. Yep. After after Hawkeye gives her the speech, and then she comes out right. and starts doing that, and then a little yeah. bit later, after her brother dies, she goes full on semi god level and rips apart, you know, Ultron. So yeah. yeah. So I'm I'm going to I'm going to explain uh show my unfamiliarity insofar as i did not realize the 
character that Aaron Ta- Taylor Johnson played, Pietro Maximoff, Quicksilver, was the same guy Evan Peters played in the X-Men movies yes. just a couple of years prior to that. And, and it was only through kind of this uh, project that I ended up realizing that, hey, this, these are these are the same character. I had no idea. Different actors, different universes. And we'll get to yep. uh, all of why that is, I guess, probably a little bit later on. Yep. But it's, it's And they did tie it together a little bit, you know. Because during WandaVision, yes. when the brother Evan comes Peters. to the door, it's actually... But... But yeah, the the idea being that you know originally they're X Men, or or they're essentially opponents of the X Men. They they started out as members of the uh, the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants, and so they're mutants. They definitely would belong in the Fox side of the universe. Wanda has also been an Avenger forever, though, and so because of that, somehow they were able to make this and, and get her in there. It's interesting how their origin story in the original movie is completely not what their origin story is because she's a mutant. WandaVision sort of retcons that because in WandaVision we we see she's got her powers when she's a kid and that may have been the thing that kept the Stark bomb from exploding and killing her when she was young. And so eventually we find out that the stone may have helped to activate her powers, but she is the Scarlet Witch. She was not made the Scarlet Witch by by the staff. So, uh, but yeah, at this point, they they don't really make that clear because they didn't have rights to mutants, and so they had to just come no. up with some other way she got her power, right? Right, so, right. So Josh, Josh Whedon was talking about adding Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch to this, and he, he basically said he thought the, their powers would be cool to use in this film. He said their powers are very visually interesting. One of the problems I had with the first one, meaning the first Avengers film, was that everybody basically had punchy powers. Quicksilver's got super speed. Scarlet Witch has a weave of spells, little telekinesis, get in your head. That's good stuff they can do that can help keep things fresh. And so we, we, and we definitely saw that. I think some of those, those uh, glimpses into the backstory that we saw during that initial battle was really interesting. And, and like, you know, Steve Rogers at the dance hall and you have the, uh, like the celebration feast that Thor bumps into and that really, really, uh, kind of destructive uh all the avengers being dead on the on the rock in space that basically uh propels uh tony stark to to try and do this thing and create the ultron uh were, were really really interesting and what's interesting is also that as we move forward a lot of these things didn't make sense at the time but the things she showed him actually were legit. I mean, Tony Stark did see mm-hmm. all his friends dead, you know, yeah. and Thor did see the destruction of Asgard, and all of these things that seemed like they were weird at the time. Actually, they paid most of them off, you know, and even yeah. the even 
when Captain America, you know, he's like, you know, we get our time for us to dance or whatever, where he goes back and sees his sweetheart from the movie. Maybe that paid off as well, you know, yeah. with him eventually going back in time and getting to live his life. So I was, I was kind of intrigued by that, by how, how much they actually gave away in those, in those flash forwards, in those visions. Yeah. Yeah, could, could, and like, yeah, Scarlet, uh, uh, the Black Widow scenes, it, it felt like those, we definitely saw like a lot of that stuff during the Black Widow movie very, very much later on. Uh, and, and so that was really interesting. Uh, the, 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 the twins actually, they, they kind of based their roles in this movie off of the Marvel Ultimates comic that we series that we had actually read, uh, where where I learned that they're you know were mutants and that that we actually read a few mm -hmm. weeks ago, uh, for the first Avengers movie and and in fact they they talked about Elizabeth Olsen and Aaron Taylor Johnson actually going through and reading through that entire comic book series to kind of help prep for 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 the role. Even even the icky later parts of that were uh... yes, and in fact they said that you know it you, when you see the two characters on screen together they're always very close to one another and they were trying to like hold hands and stuff to kind of intimate some of what was in the Marvel Ultimates thing kind of play with that a little bit but not go fully into where that ended up going. All right, yeah. maybe so... it's better. Quicksilver ended up dead. I think, I think yeah. maybe at this point, yeah, I'm, I'm less sad about that than I was. So, right. um, but yeah, the the Ultimates comic has had so much impact on the on the overall sort of arc of the the MCU. It's just astonishing how how much yeah. it's it's kind of been a pattern for it. So that makes perfect sense. So you were talking about how how they were able to kind of shoehorn or bring in. The Scarlet Witch and and specifically Quicksilver, there there was a lot of discussion about that at the time, and how they were able to, this character had been used in X Men: The Last Stand, and and uh, legal complexities between Marvel Studios and 20th Century Fox, and they actually had to agree to, like, allow for this character to be to be in there, and in, in May 2013 oh, is Fox, when that yeah. actually happened, yeah. And so there were there were stipulations, though. There were certain parameters. There could be no references to any relation to the X-Men or Magneto, which is the which is the character's father. And no reference to Quicksilver's membership in the Avengers could be used the other way. So there was there were stipulations both sides had to kind of agree to. And and they also obviously could not reference mutants in any of the Marvel movies because of. Uh, of 20th century's Fox, 20th century's Fox, uh, their their licensing agreement and all that. So, it was yep. It, it's 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 really interesting when you've got these all all this all this stuff around. It it really shouldn't be this difficult, but at the same time, no. this it, it is. It's ridiculous, but there you go. That's that's the way it's been for a while. So. Do you want to talk about so, Thor's dream that kind of uh, that that really I think kind of kind of changed the direction of where 
where this thing almost went there. I, so I don't know why my thought originally was that they changed the dream sequence when they put it on Disney plus, but now I'm realizing that it's just the same dream. I just didn't understand what it was telling me the way that I do now. At that point, the fact there was an infinity gauntlet and whatever, I'm like, this is weird. And then we get Thanos and you're like, oh, that's kind of crazy. But I just uh, didn't. I don't think I ever really believed they would go that far. All right, so so probably one of the characters I want to talk about the most is the Vision. Yeah. I think that, you know, of the new characters, the way that they brought the Vision into this and the way that they sort of, you, you know, not only served the current story, but set up the future stories with like the infinity yeah. stones and everything and uh -huh. in his head. And then also really honored the stories of the past, I think is pretty miraculously well done. The vision was a spectacular character in the way that they integrated him into the universe and everything like that. It, it was definitely a tightrope. They had to walk given all the things that they were trying to do both with what they had created and where they were going the, the, this was this was re really impressive, actually. Yep. And I like the fact that there's still elements of the fact that, you know, in the comics, the Vision is created by Ultron to sort of infiltrate the Avengers and destroy them. Well, they don't have the infiltrate and destroy portion anymore. They actually sort of split that off. And he, he wanted the other two to sort of, you know, destroy. And... And Vision was just this thing that was going to be created as a perfect body for him. But you've still got Ultron being part of the creation. You've got this weirdness of nobody really exactly knows how. Kind of like the super soldier formula. Nobody really knew exactly what happened and it was all lost. You can't just go and make another Vision. Because all the no. stuff that came together to do that. And then this singular thing that he's become. He is really a unique being in the Marvel Universe. There is nothing else like the Vision, either in the comics or now in the MCU. And it just all really seemed to work together. They also got extremely lucky because I was, you know, was watching this with my wife and she's like, so when, you know, when somebody said that the Vision sounds like Jarvis, he does sound like Jarvis, is that? And I'm like, yes. They yes. somehow managed to hire a guy to be the voice of Jarvis five years previous in, in or eight, seven years previous in Iron Man. And then uh -huh. now we're able to cast him in the role of the Vision and he looks great as the Vision. He's a spectacular yeah. actor. And he also yeah. just happens to sound like exactly who you'd hope he would so he can sound like Jarvis, you know? Uh -huh. it's, a sort, it's yeah. a sort of dumb luck that you just don't expect someone <laughs> to fight. Because Bettany is a revelation. He is astonishing yeah. as a vision, you know? Yes. It, I mean, I really liked him as Jarvis all up into this point. And, and, and in fact, he talked about during the, the featurette uh, about being just this guy that, that actually didn't end up being really part of the movies leading up to this because he was basically brought in at the end to do voiceover work and would just read his lines they'd record him and then they'd get they just plug him in and, and he never really got to interact with anybody and now you know 
he goes through makeup and and he's like like 90 minutes of makeup to put on prosthetics and color his face and and all this sort of thing and it i i just i love the way he looks and just he is he's very much like ultron in so far as he has this presence about him and and like he seems he looks important he sounds important he sounds like he like he understands just how how important he is and how important they are and everything and 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 definitely like takes everything in and like there there's no way that you're you're going to expect him to do something like like he's not stark he's definitely not uh you know even somebody like Steve Rogers, he's just this like straight arrow. And, mm-hmm. and, it, and to, to the point after, you know, Thor basically used, uses it using Mjolnir and lightning to create him. Vision gives Thor back the hammer after, you know, they spent the, the, the part, the party before Ultron showed up trying to move the hammer. Nobody could do it save for, a, a slight budge by Steve Rogers. Yep. And that's kind of brilliant because what they really did there, because some people might, you know, really understand the whole nobody can pick up the hammer unless they're worthy or whatever. But so they spend that scene doing some character development and also making sure everybody has that fresh in their mind. And then when, mm-hmm. you know, everybody doesn't trust Vision because he's newly created, he's he could just be another right. Ultron, whatever. And so uh-huh. as they're getting ready to do things, as soon as Vision sort of just picks up Thor's hammer and hands it to him and says, let's go, everybody kind of looks and goes, well, okay, I guess the hammer thinks he's okay. The rest of us <laughs> yeah. can probably just go with it too. And, right. you know, not only everybody in their circle, but everybody in the audience kind of gets that thumbs up that it's okay. Now at the yeah. end, they're sort of like, well, you could put the hammer in an elevator and the elevator could still go up. So, you know, if he's just a machine, maybe it doesn't, you know, because uh-huh. those guys are still not happy about having anybody able to lift it when they can't. But but right. I think that really was kind of the, the, the quick shorthand to, yeah, we can trust him, is he picks up the hammer and, you know, that's, that's sort of the gold seal and away they go. Yeah, because, because, I mean, he's talking about the fact that basically he's the only one that can beat Ultron. Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, you guys can't do it on your own. You're going to need me. I'm going to be the one that's actually going to have to defeat him. And if you're hearing what Ultron's been saying through the first hour and a half of this movie, it's like, hey, that sounds an awful lot like a psychotic AI just kind of going crazy. Oh, by the way, Thor, here's your hammer. I, I, I'm, I'm good. Don't worry about me. Yeah, it's really well done. So. And, and overall, I, I think that I I enjoyed that. I've enjoyed the vision all the way through. And I think that Bettany, yeah. you know, in the in the actual TV show, he, he just took it to another level. But through all the movies, yeah. he's had relatively little screen time and high impact. They also give him some of the most memorable sort of droll humor lines and a lot mm-hmm. of and a lot of the sort of wisdom lines as well. So he gets to say a lot yes. of cool, memorable things, which which helps. Yeah, like like the I, I was born yesterday at the as like yes. the last line of the movie. Yep. Yeah, 
So, uh, what about the CGI? We we definitely feels like it it ramped up to a new level here in this movie. You got a note about how many CGI shots there yeah. were. It was yes, well, how many to, to date. Yeah, to date, this film had the most visual effects shots of any Marvel movie, uh, with over three thousand of them. Uh, the previous high was from Guardians of the Galaxy in 2014 that had uh, 2,750 uh, special effects, shot, visual effects shots. So especially in the early part of the movie, I thought that you could see a little bit that they might have been straining to get this movie done in time. Uh, the first scene where they're sort of attacking Strucker's castle there with the whole team sort of throwing right. stuff and jumping and whatever. It looked more like a video game cutscene to me than a live action movie. Mm. And I don't know if okay. other people thought that, but so some of the effects, especially some of the early effects, I was not particularly impressed with. And I think I remembered finding them weird even at the time. I, I think my biggest issue is some of the stuff that happened in Johannesburg with when the Hulk started going crazy and, yep. and some of the special effects there with Veronica, the big thing. And in fact, we're going to talk about that next. Uh, so some of that sort of looked a little weird to me. Some of the like explosions and some of the things exploding and, and, and that looked a little weird. But part of part of it is the way they, they, they talked about in the featurette about making vision and they wanted to make him look human, but also make him look synthetic or like an android. And so they, they, you know, they had Paul Bettany in makeup in this prosthetic head thing. And they, they did a lot to make it look like the manner of the, like the facial features and that they wanted it to look realistic. So they kept a lot of like, the mouth movement and especially the eyes from Paul Bettany mm -hmm. had to look had to look human, but they they actually took and then basically re-rendered his face to give it a, a a more kind of elastic sort of look to it, and and that's how the kind of the the final version of Vision ended up being 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 shot, and so it the, you know you've got this character and and he's he's got actually a lot of like facial close-ups over mm -hmm. that final stretch once he's once he's in the in the film yeah yep there's now again i think that the the visual effect of ultron was spectacular for the most part a lot of the things yeah. that weren't human i think looked great but it was sometimes when they were doing the cgi that involved people some of the main characters and the like or like you said, sometimes with the city stuff, there were a few times yeah. where it just, there were a lot of things exploding and not all of it looked entirely right. So, yeah. What, what did you think of the Hulkbuster armor and and that whole sequence in Johannesburg? Well, so, so first off, I mean, nothing, when Tony Stark at a certain point says, you know, we are the mad scientists, right? Uh-huh. Oops. It is a little worrisome that you've got this billionaire launching a satellite with a massive weapon into orbit and then just having it mm -hmm. kind of circling the globe for whenever he wants it. Tony Stark really yep. is a is like a 
an evil mad scientist at a certain point. He does things yeah. that normal people just would not do. But the Hulkbuster armor is cool. Everybody loved it. Everybody <laughs> was looking forward to it. And you cannot deny that Hulkbuster versus Hulk is a is yeah. a visual worth doing, right? It's a um, it's a spectacle, which is exactly what you would expect from an Avengers movie. I saw this movie on opening night back the day it came out, and there were actual like cheers from the audience when the Hulkbuster armor first appeared. So sure, yeah, it was it was fun, you know. That's was it really necessary? Probably not, but it was fun. You know, <laughs> Probably not. Yeah, that yeah. that entire that entire set piece with the whole destruction of the city. Mm-hmm. Really, you could have pretty much just taken that out, and the movie would have not changed a whole lot. No, probably only, not. You know, because they'd still have been in trouble with, like the Sokovia Accords, from the fact that they were involved in making an intelligence that lifted a city you know, two miles in the air and then tried to crash it down and, and destroy the world. Yeah. So I, I, that whole thing was actually unnecessary. And in a two and a half hour movie, there is something about saying you should have to justify why every scene is there. And it was just because it was cool. That, that might, that might've just been fan service then at that point. Well, yep. Yeah. So, one other thing that I, I think just one of the big things that really is important with these two is just how much it does show how the Avengers are, are a classic Marvel team. They are always fighting with each other, whether they're literally yeah. leveling a city or if they're just sniping at each other in the lab or whatever. It's most of the conflict in a lot of the Avengers comes from them fighting with each other. And I think yeah. one thing you see here, and we kind of had met, talked about it, is that increasingly you're starting to see a significant difference between the way Tony Stark thinks and acts and the way that Captain America thinks and acts. And that those two are going to increasingly become sort of these polar opposites, literally, leading right. into Civil War. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I had no idea what was coming, but it like now seeing the movie again, that was all I kept thinking is, wow, these guys, you know, they weren't really on the same page in the first film, but they really don't seem like they're on the same page of the second year, even as they kind of ended amicably at the end of the at the end of the movie. You, you could still see that, like, hey, anything comes up, these two are going to have a difference of opinion as to how to, how to deal with it. And and Stark is regularly making fun of Captain America for being old fashioned or for you know, you know don't don't be cursing, the cap is gonna be angry at you or whatever. He's yeah. he's always kind of looking at him as being naive. And Cap, on the other hand, is somebody who's more practical and he just looks at Stark as someone who thinks he's so smart but just never really is taking in the bigger picture. And so they don't really trust each other. They don't understand each other. They get along because in the end, they both do technically want the same thing. They're both 
people who are trying to make the world a better place. But the way they do it and the world they envision is wildly different. Yeah, one of my one of my favorite scenes in the in the whole movie is when they're at Barton's farm and they're they're trying to they're they're cutting fire chopping wood chopping wood and they they start you know they're talking about what what should happen and So Steve Rogers has this quote as they're going back and forth because they're like talking about Ultron and Stark goes, you know, Ultron's just trying to tear us apart, right? And he goes, well, I guess you'd know whether you tell us is a bit of a question. Banner and I were doing research, says Stark. Sir Rogers, that would affect the whole team. And he and ultimately it leads to Rogers saying every time someone tries to win a war before it starts, innocent people die every time. And it just, it just proves just how on polar opposite these two are and how they look at things and, and, and it's going to come to a head and we know it's coming to a head, but you could, you could just, you really see it start to ramp up in this movie. Nope. Yeah. And, I, I loved in that one too when 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 Cap gets mad and he 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 gives up on even using the axe and just starts ripping the logs apart uh, with his bare hands yeah. instead. So yeah, but yeah that that whole idea that Stark just doesn't think about consequences, and yeah. Captain America is always thinking about who's going to get hurt, and Tony just doesn't really worry about that. He keeps being just confident that. Science is gonna. Science and technology is gonna take care of things, and he doesn't have to worry about the future. So, so one one other weird thing, and I, I'm sure you'll agree with me, is the Hulk, Bruce Banner, and 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 Black Widow thing. Do not get me started. Their sort this. of relationship, their relationship in here is a little. It's a little weird. So this is not a comics thing, and I don't understand why they're doing this thing. I don't like it. The fact that somehow or another the only thing that can calm Bruce Banner down is the, you know, is is Black Widow going over and somehow just taking, you know, putting a hand on him and settling him down or whatever. And I just think that that, that takes a character in... Mostly I don't like it because of Black Widow. Because this is a character who, you know, she's the only female member of the team. And there's a couple of times where, you know, not only does she have to kind of watch the kids and make sure that they're not breaking things, right? But even when she's right. even when she's chasing after the truck on her motorcycle and she grabs the shield, she's like, I'm always picking up yeah. after you guys. You know, it. there is a little bit of that where... Why they had to make the only female member of the team also a love interest, and especially one that isn't really in the comics, I just, yeah, I could have done without it. It was, it was not my thing. That said, I mean, it's Hollywood. They always have to have a little bit of, of you know, romance in the movie, I guess. And there weren't any other likely ones because all of the other girlfriends and or 
significant others were off running companies or winning Nobel prizes or whatever. So in any case, I, I didn't like the, the black widow and Hulk thing from the very beginning. And there you go. That's my grouchy tape of the week. There there you go. I I liked most of this movie, but I didn't exactly like that part. Sure. Sure. Makes sense. All right, as usual, I've got some tidbits and other references from the comics that we can we can uh, chat about a little bit here as we wrap things up. First, I've got the working title of the film to keep production a secret. This this movie was uh, codenamed After Party, which I think is actually kind of kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, so during the feature, Kevin Feige said that actually Joss Whedon said. You know, if as they were making the first Avengers film, he said, if they're ever going to do an Avengers sequel, that Ultron had to be the villain and that he should create the vision. And in fact, obviously, they did do a, a sequel. Joss, Joss Whedon mm-hmm. was involved and uh, that's exactly what happened. So that's that's kind of interesting. So all the way back when the first Avengers movie came out, that's where some of these seeds of of where this movie ended up being. Uh, started there so uh the sokovia scenes were actually shot in two different locations the opening scene was filmed in italy um which which was actually the very last scene that was filmed uh during production uh principal photography so that's kind of interesting and then the final battle the where sokovia was being lifted from the ground was actually shot in London in the UK, and, and so that was that was kind of kind of interesting. Two different countries ended up being basically the same city, uh, uh, as far as that goes. Uh, regarding regarding James Spader and, and his role in this film, so originally he was going to be kind of just a voice, but he actually ended up. Uh, wearing the motion capture suit and acting out his scenes. And because Ultron was like eight or nine feet tall, possibly even 10 foot tall, and James Spader's only 5'10", he had to wear this antenna-like contraption uh, on his back that had this like metal rod with these two red balls at the top so that the cast members, when they were looking at Ultron, would look at where the CGI head of Ultron would be when 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 it was spliced into the into the film, and in fact, uh, Elizabeth Olsen was talking about you know there were many times where we were in scenes with James Spader, and I had I they had to cut and reshoot because I kept looking at James Spader and not looking at the at the red balls up on the top of the uh, <laughs> on top of the rod. CGI is weird. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Huh, yeah. He was actually so, there. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. He originally, it sounded like he was just going to mainly do just voiceover work, but, but wanted to really immerse himself in the character and, and felt like he could do a better job with the role overall if, if he would actually be in the motion capture suit. So I was really shocked when I started watching the feature at, and you actually see James Spader in this big, motion capture suit with this giant rod thing on its back uh it looked it looked really weird that's hilarious 
And and the final note, it, it was more of a reference, I guess, for me that I wasn't aware of, which was how the Avengers come to know that uh, Baron Strecker was in Sokovia with the scepter and and that led to the mm-hmm. this big attack at the beginning of the film. It was actually an episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, 2015 episode, The Dirty Half Dozen, Agent Coulson breaks into the Hydra base and locates Loki's shield, contacts Maria Hill, who then tells the Avengers to go to Sokovia to retrieve it, hence setting off this whole movie. So I had not seen Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., didn't see this episode, had no idea that that's how this came to fruition, but but in fact that was, the there was that interconnection between the movies and even Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, where something in the TV show then led to to directly to what happened in the movie. Oh, interesting. I know that there have been a couple of times. I did not know that, that the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. was directly related to the MCU because there was a couple times where, like, Sif appeared and there were some crossovers and the like. Uh, so it wasn't mm-hmm. just Coulson. But, no, that's interesting. Huh. Yeah. All right, regarding some references to the comics, you know, we talked about this at the beginning, and the film is named after the 2013 Marvel Comics series Age of Ultron. However, Kevin Feige explained that that particular comic was not being used for the storyline. Quote, we came up with a few titles, but every month a new comic book appeared, and Age of Ultron is a great title. We had a few other of Ultron's titles but that was the best one. So we're borrowing that title, but taking storylines from decades of Avengers storylines. So again, they just, they just liked the title. So that's why they ended up using it for the movie. Yeah. One, one thing that does bother me about that is of course, age of Ultron being sort of a homage back to age of apocalypse sort of establishes that the age of should be time travel dystopias. Rather than just sure. crazy robots in the present. But I suppose nobody really cared about that. So never mind. No. Carry on. So, so the first thing that I really noticed uh, was Ultron's first appearance to the twins in the church. He was wearing a red slash crimson looking cowl. Likely a nod to his first appearance in the comics that we read last week. Yep. I immediately was like, hey, he's wearing a red cowl thing. That's that that's so awesome. So so there was that. Uh Ulysses Claw was seen wearing a necklace with a claw on it. Uh the comics state that he got that by murdering T'Challa, T'Chaka, sorry, King of Wakanda, and the current Black Panther T'Challa's father. So, yep. so that was something in there. That was, I think those were the first references to Wakanda too, that I can think of as well. Talking about vibranium, they even had Mark Ruffalo, uh, Bruce Banner, butcher Wakanda, the country yep. name uh, in there as well. So um, the expression, the sun's getting real low, which was used to calm the Incredible Hulk, was a reference to the original comic where Banner would transform every night. But here it is used to make the Incredible Hulk revert back to his Bruce, Bruce Banner form. Yep, because originally and, he was almost like a, you know, like a werewolf or a, something like that. Where oh. He would transform at night 
And then in the morning, he would be back to being human again. Ah, okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. The final reference for you is the band that Steve Rogers sees in his hallucination is called the Roy Thomas Players. Roy Thomas was Marvel's editor-in-chief during the 1970s, succeeding Stan Lee. Thomas co-created, along with artist John Buscema, Ultron, and The Vision during his long and influential writing stint on the Avengers comic books from 1966 to 1972. Absolutely. That's awesome. Yes. A lot so of good stuff. Those are the, refer the references I, I had from the comics. Any, anything that jumped out to you that I that that from the comics that you that you noticed? Well, I mean the fact that you know Claw had to lose his arm someplace, so he lost it. Yeah, you know this yep, way. That's true. In the comics, he has a he has kind of a prosthesis that's a thing that allows him to do his sound. There was there were a number of times where there were things that seemed like they were referencing stuff. Even at the end, there's a shirt that. Um, Tony's wearing that looks like it's got like a, a stripe almost and it, it actually reminded me of Quicksilver's costume a little bit in the comics mm. I went out and looked there's evidently no confirmation that it means anything but it's an interesting shirt I, I think that sure. there were a ton of things as you got some of the Infinity Stones and you're getting a lot of these others we're really starting to get a lot of not only Easter eggs, but just straight on comic content in these. And you can see they're becoming much yeah. more confident with the idea that people already know the basics of the Marvel Universe and they're starting to throw in more and more extras each time. And so it's yeah. just the confidence the filmmakers have with the, the comic literacy of the audience is what starts to impress me as we get farther and farther into these. Yeah. Nope. Definitely. All right, Dwayne. So we have read age of Ultron from 2013, 10 issues, and we've watched the movie age of Ultron. So we know you're a Brian Michael Bendis fan, but uh, uh -huh. you've got, you've got Bendis's Ultron run and you've got Whedon's, avengers movie which one do you think you like better now this is this is a tough face off and and in fact one thing i will say is i have not seen a age of ultron the the movie in some time like i don't think i saw it more than maybe once on video since seeing it in the theater and i ended up liking this movie quite a bit more than i remembered liking this movie and and the fact that i had kind of some of the additional context and understanding uh, surrounding Ultron, surrounding the twins and different things like that. It made me appreciate the movie more. And so I'm going to have to go with the movie this time. I, I loved the Brian Michael Bendis run. I'm not typically a time travel fan, but I think the spectacle that Age of Ultron was, the, the comic book was, I think he actually did a fantastic job juggling a ton of characters and stories and time periods and different things like that. But at the end of the day, I just, I really like what this movie is and what it's set up going forward. And I, I'm going to give it the nod. 
Alrighty then. I have a tough time with this one. Because I think Age of Ultron, the comics, did a nice job of going back and really re-looking at some of the... I mean, it, it really is a, a Hank Pym story, you know. Right. And it's it's a story about how one man can make a difference and change the world. And so there is a thesis to that that really does... That, that does yeah. really make sense to me. It resonates. And it resonates, I'm sure. Avengers Age of Ultron, the movie, is also similarly kind of something that has a you know this idea of more of that idea of how dangerous is technology and and you know what is the responsibility of someone who wants to to do good in the world to make sure they don't blow it up while they're trying to do good and it's more of a, a tony stark focused thing i think uh, i actually like the movie better but it's hard for me to admit it to be quite frank i didn't think i'd like this movie that much I didn't remember, at least the second time I watched it, or a couple times ago, I didn't love it that much. But I think it does a lot of good stuff, and so I'm gonna go with I'm gonna go with the movie as well, just because this is again kind of in Marvel's golden period. I think that you know there was a lot of action here, but they still hit some good points as far as the characters, and it was it was well done. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think the I think that some of the criticism this movie has I think are from from people that were expecting something different or or I I would challenge anybody that doesn't didn't like this movie initially to watch it again and see what they think because I I think there's more to this movie than I think a lot of people give it credit for. With the caveat that Joss Whedon has not exactly aged well over the last decade so if you've just decided that creepy directors are people you're going to avoid and you're not going to watch this anymore well then hopefully we've been able to get you a bridge to the rest of the mcu yes you can listen to this podcast and not and not worry about watching more joss whedon uh because that is that is valid as well but but as far as it goes i think that the movie did what it needed. There were times, by the way, where if Whedon's kind of jokey sensibility drives you a little nuts, this one would too, because there are a lot of little little jokes in this, and sometimes they yeah. they go a little bit far, just in terms of, you know, it's like one every couple of seconds for a little while. But yeah, mm-hmm. I I would I would agree if you if you remember Age of Ultron as being a movie that that was subpar. Might be time to just give it a rewatch. Again, the scary thing to me is that the reason why you might like it more now is because you used to compare it to the Marvel movies of Phase 1, and now you're comparing it to the Marvel movies of Phase 4. And the real problem isn't that Age of Ultron got better. It's that the stuff you're comparing it to got very, very much worse. Sure. That's a fair fair point as well so so where are we headed to next Dan? oh it's gonna be an interesting week we're moving into a a new character we have not seen any ant-man before 
So other than maybe one or two small appearances in an adventures book or something. So we're going to go look first off at the first appearance of the second Ant-Man. Because, of course, we've got our first Ant-Man, Hank Pym. And then after Pym became Yellow Jacket, uh, Steve Englehart decided, hey, we've, we've got a, an Ant-Man trademark we want to continue. So let's go ahead and make a new Ant-Man. So we did that in Marvel premiere number 47 and number 48. The second Ant-Man, Scott Lang, is actually going to appear as an Avenger for quite a while. He'll be going around in like Marvel team-ups with Spider-Man or two-in-ones with the Thing, that sort of stuff. He does eventually start getting his own series though. And the one we're going to be watching is one that's, or reading, is one that's contemporary with his movie. So this is going to be a true face-off. Because we're going to be reading sure. Astonishing Ant-Man number 1 through 13 from 2015. And then watching Ant-Man from 2015. So <laughs> it is... There we go. It is one and the other. The other thing I want to do is issue to you a little bit of a challenge, Dwayne. Or at least a an offer. And that is, yeah. this is 15 books, which is more than we normally read. And so... If you're not enjoying Astonishing Ant-Man, you can quit at any point that you decide you're just done with them. And I will read and then fill people in on the rest of them. I'm hoping you like them enough to make it all the way to 13. But I want you to honestly just go through and if you're like, I've had enough at 5 or I've had That's... enough at 7, then you do that. Okay. I'm betting you, I, won't, I'm going, I'm betting I'm you gonna... won't hate it enough that you quit in the middle of the first book. We're going to have a rough time next week, but we'll <laughs> okay. see. I, I have not, I have not found myself at that point at any time, at any time. And don't expect this will be uh, any different. So I don't think you will either. I think they're pretty good. I think they're pretty good stories. I enjoyed them, but nonetheless, it is a lot. So we will see how it goes. But the, the Marvel premiere 47 and 48, which are not actually Scott Lang's introduction, but they're when he first becomes Ant-Man are from 1979 and then, yeah, we're skipping up to 2015 for the uh, sort of his reintroduction a little bit. That's kind of a, a pretty important series for that character. All right, that sounds good. And with that, that's going to wrap it up for us for this week. We'd like to thank you all for joining us. If you're new to the podcast, please consider subscribing on your podcast player of choice. That way you'll get each new episode as soon as it's released. If you've been listening for a while, we'd appreciate you telling a friend about the show or leaving us a review. It'll help others find the show moving forward. If you have some thoughts on Age of Ultron, The Avengers, or anything else comic book related, we'd love to hear them. You can interact with us on social media via Twitter. We are at Comics Over Time there. You can also reach us via email. That address is comments at comicsovertime.com. Dan, Age of Ultron, especially with the additional context I had now, was much better movie than I remembered it being. And Ant-Man is actually the only other MCU movie I have not seen. And I am very much looking forward to getting context ahead of watching the movie. So after this one, you will be up to having all of them watched. I will. Ha yes, I'm planning on watching both Ant-Man movies before going to see Quantum Mania. Very cool. Very cool indeed. Yep. So we will see you guys all next week. Looking forward to talking about some more comics. And uh, have yourself a great week. Until then, everybody, take care. <laughs> <laughs>